a lot of people used to ask me when I was younger why I thought I was getting promoted, and I said, because I'm willing to leave. I'm willing to leave the city I'm living in. I'm willing to leave the company I'm working at. Um, for me, right after I started at Jive, Aaliyah left and went to Atlantic at the time. So I got the memo early that they might leave me. Right. Know, so. <laughs> Hi, this is What's Next podcast with Yumindi Francis, and I'm your host, Yumindi Francis. Juliet Jones, Chief Operating Officer at Alamo Records, is one of the most powerful executives in the music industry. During the course of her 25-year career, Jones has played a critical role in the success of today's most influential artists, laying the groundwork for their global stardom. Recognized for her success in the music industry, Juliet Jones has appeared on the cover of Billboard and ranked in Billboard and Variety's Women in Power list issues numerous times. She's been honored by a number of prestigious organizations as well. With all this said, she remains an ardent mentor to many in the music and entertainment industry. It is my sincere honor and pleasure to welcome Juliet Jones to What's Next podcast with me, your host, Yumindi Francis. Thank you so much, Yumindi. Hi, Julia. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. I'm so excited to have this conversation and get into it with you. Me too. A little nervous, but excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It goes by so fast and, I, and we just try to create a space of comfort here. Okay, awesome. All right. So, Juliet, needless to say, you have one of the most successful career trajectories in the music business. You've walked the halls of every major music label and worked with so many incredible artists from Aaliyah to Bruno Mars, Cardi B, Burner Boy, and Little Dirk. And I'm definitely naming just a few. How did you get your start in the business? So interestingly enough, I got my start in the business because I was going to school at University of Maryland and I worked in the evenings at MCI, which is something most people under 40 won't know what it is, but it was a long distance service provider. And I was in a customer service center in the evenings and a woman started working there as well, who had just returned from living overseas. She had been in the music business and was looking to get back into the music business and asked me if I would like to intern for her. Oh, wow. Uh, her name is Arlinda Garrett and still very close part of my life. Um, and I said, well, intern for you, what do I have to do? And she said, hand out cassettes and T-shirts, cassettes. I'm totally aging myself at the club. And I was like, cool, because I'm going anyway. I'm a college student, so this is great. Um, and I had never heard of the music business before. The only thing I knew about it was which most people know about it. I didn't sing or play an instrument, so I didn't see a place for me to partake in the music business. Um, and so that's how I got my start in Washington, D.C., interning with her and doing street teams, which was a very new thing at that time. Um, and it was really going to clubs and trying to get DJs to play music and hand out merch and single cassettes to people who were going. So that's how you got into promotion, essentially. That's how, that's how I got into the music business. She was getting back into it. So we used to do talent shows and she was doing independent promotion. So I ended up like helping to do shows and styling artists and all kinds of things just because I was just trying to get in and she was trying to get back. So we were doing all kinds of things around D.C. at that time that involved music. Um but she was a promotion person. She ended up getting a regional job and I stayed with her. But over the next five years that I interned, I ended up trying many things. And I moved to New York to intern at WBLS. Um, 
a friend of mine from college, Nikkel Schultz, her godfather, Percy Sutton, owned the station. She was the person who got Puff the internship there. He left to go to Uptown, so I moved into the internship. Nikkel was definitely the plug for the internship. <laughs> so I moved to New York for the first time, the most expensive city in America, to work for free. No. It's a really great plan. So that was, you know, the beginning. And I interned for a long time. And at that time, I'm not sure how it is in New York now, but because I wasn't from here, it was almost impossible to get a job. No one thought that I was going to stay. Apparently, you know, people would come here and it was too much for them and they would leave. Right. And so I ended up starting my own street promotion company because I couldn't get a job. I got my first independent promotion contract in New York by offering to work the record for free. And if I got it played, I asked to be paid. Right. And I met, I went to the after party of Crooklyn and introduced myself to Funkmaster Flex, who was an upcoming DJ. And I was fresh out of D.C., so I had on slacks and a silk blouse. And he's like, Ma, where are you from? Like, I don't believe that you know anything about hip hop, but I was very D.C. chic. You know, we were 19, going to the jazz club, feeling very sophisticated. (laughs) So I definitely, he kind of gave me a bit of a hip-hop makeover, thank God for Flex, um, and really kind of helped me learn the ropes a little bit. And he eventually, you know, I got him to play the record for me, which he was really mad at because that single was Usher Raymond Call Me a Mac off of the Poetic Justice soundtrack. Usher was 11 years old. It, if you go to YouTube and listen, it definitely didn't belong on Funkmaster Flex's show. <laughs> um relationships matter and relationships matter so after that my company i started doing well and that's how i ended up finally after five years landing my first job at jive records wow five years working for free building it building it up what did you do in the meantime hustle street team um i i my job at mci had moved to South Carolina. So I had the option to get laid off, which is how I was even able to move to New York because I was getting unemployment. Right. So my unemployment, I was paying somebody, I think, $150 a month to sleep on their couch in Harlem. And I would intern all day, five days a week, and then at BLS. And then I had a little part-time internship at Arista Records with Lionel Ridenauer and Jeff House. And then after that, in the evenings, I would do my street team stuff. So you earned every second of this. I was out here with my backpack with 12 inches in it on the subway. Yes. I hear something I never want to do again. (laughs) (laughs) You're a long way from that now. Thank God. So you spent the majority of your career in promotion. Yes. Um, And what is that? What is that? portion of the music industry about? I mean, people know, but like we've had conversations and there's so much that goes into the job. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes people get it confused because to them, a promoter is someone who throws parties and throws things at the club, which is also a promoter. But in the record context, promotions is the department that gets the records on the radio and all of the things that go with supporting that. So if be the 10th caller and win tickets to see Lil Durk, we set that up. You know, Dirk is doing interviews on radio, which he really doesn't do. But if he was doing that, theoretically, we'd be the ones to set it up. Um, And so it's just all of the things radio. We set up promo tours oftentimes, now more around albums. We used to do it more for singles and albums. You take artists around the country, they do a bunch of radio interviews. 
They sometimes meet and greet fans. You know, nowadays it's more often that they're on tour, but we do all of the things that connect radio to the artists and the music. And as time has gone by, that's evolved much. You know, iHeart is huge media company. They have iHeart, you know, their iHeart app. So there's a lot of other outlets now that fall under the radio umbrella, so to speak. When I started, there was nothing like serious. There was no satellite radio that falls under the promotion department. And so when they're talking about chart position, that is what we do. We get the chart every Monday. We get a report card, which is really what attracted me to it. Um, Many things are subjective. And when you do marketing, you kind of go in the meeting and you're working really hard and you have something you love and then everyone gives their, I like it, I don't like it, I don't know. And I don't know the way my personality was set up. I didn't feel like I was going to do well with that. And promotion, I loved it because every Monday, you know, number one is number one. There's right. no opinion to have. Very analytical. Completely. Paper doesn't lie. <laughs> Numbers do not lie. Right. So how did you rise through the ranks to be considered one of the best in the industry? I think hard work and dedication. I think I stayed I stayed at it. And a big thing that served me in my career that I often tell younger people is, Early on, I I realized, well, early-ish on, I realized that I didn't want someone else to define the ceiling of what I was capable of doing. And so in the jobs that I was in, I would work hard and I sort of am the accidental executive because early on I had a very intentional, I just want to make six figures and be a national by the time I was 30. And then I thankfully achieved that. And after that, I wasn't sure exactly. I probably wasn't dreaming big enough for my career. Um, But I think I always wanted to do really good work. I was very competitive. I think promotion is also a thing where we do get the report card every Monday. And it was very friendly. We'd all hang out together. But if you were the one with the number one record that week at happy hour, you were definitely talking a lot of shit. (laughs) So it was a good time, right? Friendly competition. And I loved winning. I hated to lose. And I always wanted to grow and find out what more I was capable of contributing to. And in my first job at Jive, it was a relatively small company. So it afforded me the opportunity to help out with some marketing stuff, with some publicity stuff, and really give me a stronger sense of how all of the pieces fit together, which you don't necessarily get a sense of when you're in the field. Right. Because the first four and a half years of my employment there, I worked in D.C. and then in Atlanta. So I wasn't in the home office. I didn't have access. Um, And when I got to a certain level and I wanted a promotion and they didn't want to give it to me, we parted ways. And I went with the people who thought I could do more and saw in me what I saw in myself at that time. And And some of it was the marathon. I mean, I lost my job and I ended up being a magazine editor for a couple of years at a trade magazine. Lionel's advice to me was just stay in. If you get out and you, it's harder to get back in. So if your opportunity stay in the industry in some sort of stay in the industry in some sort of capacity. If your opportunity right now is to be a magazine, you know, a magazine editor at a music trade hits magazine, do that. Yeah. And so I did that. And I never had thought in my life about being a magazine editor. And I wrote an article. And, you know, thankfully, the magazine's premise is humor because it was always about my first article opened. I had to move to L.A. to do it. I said, 
you know, I'm just wondering if L.A. is like exercise that they tell you if you do it long enough, you'll love it. But it never happened. <laughs> like, you know, it just never gets better. Um, and so that w- but I made a lot of great relationships there. I would talk to everyone at every label and I just stayed at it and wrote my articles and kind of honed that skill. And it taught me to work really collaboratively with people because Promotion is a lot of talking to outside partners, but we obviously put the magazine to bed as a group every mm-hmm. week um, until I had the next opportunity with records and I went back. And that was really it. A lot of people used to ask me when I was younger, kind of my my colleagues, why I thought I was getting promoted. And I said, because I'm willing to leave. I'm willing to leave the city I'm living in. I'm willing to leave the company I'm working at. I think it's easy when you because our product is a human being, you get very attached to them, right? Your friends and you're very committed to their journey. And so as you spend longer at companies, you want to be the vice president at your company with your artists that you've been with. Right. Um, for me, right after I started at Jive, Aaliyah left and went to Atlantic at the time. So I got the memo early that they might leave me. Right. Know? So... <laughs> And they should, right? I mean, all of us should do, it's a job. You should do what is best for you professionally and the friendships will remain. You don't have to work together to be friends. Um, so I think that was really a big part of what set me apart is, and then of course, when I ended up at Atlantic Records, I had never been in a space to work so closely with women that powerful and accomplished. And Andrea Gannis, who ran Top 40 Promotion there, for a long time, my icon, I mean, definitely broke a bunch of glass ceilings for women in promotion. And Julie Greenwald, of course, is, you know, another level of iconic woman in the music business. And they opened my mind to what I could become. I had never been that up close with women that were that accomplished. And as that was happening, my classmates sort of from Jive were going on. Grace Miguel was the head of creative at Def Jam, and we had worked at Jive together in our as young 20-somethings. And, you know, Wendy Washington was running publicity at Universal Records. And so the idea of running divisions and possibly running a label, I didn't really have a strong access to that until a little bit later in my career. When you saw it actually And when happening. I saw it and I was working with her and saw how she was moving as the head of the company and how confident Julie is and smart and like tenacious. I felt like she would walk in a, ro- a boardroom full of men and they were like, uh-oh. <laughs> I didn't think that she ever Here walked in Julie. like, uh-oh, I got to go in here with all these men. I think she, I always felt like she went in here like I, the queen is here, like we can start. Right. I've arrived. And I was like, oh, I like that. <laughs> that's the energy we need. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's I, I felt like that's the energy you have to have. Right. There's no mystery right. why she's one of very few women who reached that level. Yeah. You have to have that. I think everything you shared thus far is so important because it is not easy, obviously, to move up the ranks in a corporate environment, no matter what your industry is. And you've touched upon a few very strategic things that folks need to consider or should consider as they move along. Um, And how you think and see situations and your perspective very much has to do with how far you go as well as those relationships. I agree. I think my biggest advice to people is be very open. Like, I never considered, like I said, being a magazine editor. 
I never thought I would be the head of the promotion department, much less the COO of anybody's label. I did not have that vision for myself, but I was open-minded about, and I did believe that I was smart and I was willing to do the work and see kind of what that opened up for me. Um, And I think people kind of have this perception sometimes that it's easier for other people that like people who move up and move around and change jobs that somehow it's easier for them to do than, than you. Right. But, you know, I read a book probably 15, 20 years ago now called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And it was very eye opening about the idea that people who do a bunch of fearless stuff are not fearless. They just do it anyway. If you're waiting for things to happen where you won't be afraid, you won't have sort of anxiety or butterflies in your stomach, you never do anything because change, good or bad, does cause a level of anxiety. Moving to a new apartment is stressful. Moving to a new city is stressful. As a kid switching schools is stressful. It doesn't mean it's not a good thing to do. It's just in the moments of the change, we all it lands the same for everyone. And I think sometimes people look at people who who are successful and think they have something special. It's the Nipsey hustle. The only right. difference between me and them is I kept going. As a psycho. <laughs> I mean, the, I don't know if Nip was on your list of artists I work with, but definitely had a profound impact on me. I mean, the late great Nipsey hustle was inspirational in life. And I'm glad to see that his message has continued on and his, how inspiring he was in his life has actually grown now that he's no longer here. And it was true. I mean, Nip was in his mid-30s and and still going and had not reached the pinnacle of his career. And I have no doubt that had he lived, that he would have become one of the biggest. And it was all about his dedication and his commitment to staying at it. So you've worked with so many phenomenal artists, as you know, we mentioned at the top of the podcast. And so I know that... Um, there's some folks that you work with that have left an impression on you. Uh, because I've also noticed that you, you're a consummate professional, but the talent that you work with, they gravitate to you in a very different way. It's something personal. Um, who's affected you? Who's left an indelible impression on you? I know there's probably so many, but there's so many. I mean, Aaliyah for sure, because she was my first artist. I had been on that job for one week. She was doing her first promotion of her career and her album was already platinum. She hadn't done anything yet. And they kind of said to me, if she's not happy, we're going to fire you. And I'm like, I just got this job a week ago. I've been working five years for free. I finally got this job and now my whole future relies on a 15 year old. Oh, my God. Um, But she was lovely. She was. I didn't know. I was so worried. Right. Because they put so much pressure on the situation. And she was the sweetest, loveliest human being, aside from being such a phenomenal artist. And so always an impression on me. And I remain, I kept a relationship with her through the duration of her life. Um, and so obviously, you know, devastating when she passed. I think um, also in that time, I mean, my time at Jive Records was just incredibly impactful because it was my first job. And I am originally from Evanston, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. And at that time, R. Kelly was the biggest. And so a lot of press would say that Jive was R. Kelly's Chicago-based label. 
And Juliet from Jive had a nice ring to it. So I was in, right? Like right. it was like team Jive. This is my place. This is amazing. Um, and he had an impression on me because he is, you know, despite all the challenges, in my opinion, a musical genius. And what struck me in meeting him at a very young age was that, in my opinion, from the outside, he was like this huge star and rich and he was 12 play and he was exploding. And usually when I saw him, he seemed sad. And I always felt like saying, are you okay? Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm going back to my apartment with the roommate, shuffling my little checks every two weeks. And so I understood very much in that moment, which I think has served me really well throughout the course of my career, that being really good at one thing doesn't make you anything else. Having an extraordinary talent doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you kind. It doesn't make you anything else but extraordinary at that one thing. The other thing still requires work if you want to have a fully rounded existence. And so I think that gave me access, A, to view all of them as human beings, which is make space for us to have real relationships because I think of them as people, right? I'm not like, ooh, well, it's... In all fairness, after doing this for a long time, I mean, I still like New Edition can reduce me to like a 12 year old <laughs> as I was a little kid fan. Right. right. So I'm like, oh, my God, it's my Ronnie, Brothy, Ricky, and Mike. But Whitney Houston, I was a huge fan before I got in the music business and Whitney's an icon. So when I met her, I was just speechless. Right. And I was a big executive by then. And I was like, she's like, hello. And I'm like, yeah, girls. Um, but I think all of those things, and I think that I also understood that these were little kids who were dreaming of these moments, right? That's right. Dreaming of hearing their songs on the radio or seeing themselves on BET or seeing themselves on MTV or whatever the thing is at that time. And I never wanted to be responsible for why their dreams didn't come true. I wanted to make my best effort. I can't make anyone like the music. I don't make the music. But I didn't want to feel like I was the weakest link in the process. I wanted to leave, no matter what happened, feeling really good about what I contributed. And I think they sense that, that I see them. I have a real sensibility and I understand the responsibility of, of the role I'm playing in something that is, in fact, their life stream. It helps that I'm still very passionate about what I do. I think also speaks to why I've had such longevity. I still love it. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm back with my Chicago and Lil Dirk. <laughs> Speaking of Lil Dirk, it was announced at the top of 2022 that you joined Alamo Records as chief operating officer. How has your tenure in this role evolved you as a professional? What's a day, week, month in the life of Alamo COO? So I think it's important to answer this question to give some context. Yeah. Alamo Records was started by Todd Moskowitz. The genius. The genius, who was my boss at Warner Brothers. He hired me into the Warner Music Group system. I ended up at Atlantic when Todd left the company. They moved the urban music division, which I think since show must be pause day is now called black music in most companies again, division to Atlantic. Um, And so Todd started this company. I had an opportunity to join Alamo in 2022. Todd has been like a mentor to me and a friend, and I have a tremendous amount of trust and admiration for him. And that coupled with, I loved working at Jive when it was a smaller company and I loved being much more involved. And Atlantic is an amazing label with some incredible talent and executives and artists alike. Um, But it's a big company with a lot of, a lot of artists. And 
over time, I was really the promo girl. And that was a full time and a half job there with just the volume of artists. And I wanted to go somewhere smaller that afforded me the opportunity to be involved more than just getting the records played and doing the radio piece. And so when I had the opportunity to go back and work with Todd, I was like, this is great. And I, like many people, I think in COVID, started thinking much more about my work-life balance and my life experience, period. And so all of those things contributed to my decision to go to Alamo. And so it's very different because it's way smaller than um, Atlantic and a very different business model. But so a day in in my life as the CEO of Atlantic of Alamo Records is ever changing because it's I do an entrepreneurial of, endeavor, so right? And speak. I do a little bit of everything, yeah. and so I have visibility into everything. I I run meetings with the digital marketing team. I run meetings with the marketing team. I interface with the A&R guys. I help get in contact with features or producers if I happen to know them. I work on with the managers and the agents on setting up touring and and talking about strategy to build their touring business and talk to the managers about ancillary business and timing about how all of the pieces are going to fit together of all the different things that the artist has going on. Because of course, today with social media and the internet, the opportunities are endless. Yeah. And so there's just an endless amount of moving parts. It takes a bunch of people to sort of wrangle all the stuff together and figure out what we're going to use our time on. Um, And I think that that my evolution as an executive is still going all the time. I learn every day, which I also love about that. But I think a big part of it is I've had to get confident quickly with making decisions and standing by them in areas where I'm not, I did promotion for decades. So it was like, I could do it with my eyes closed, one hand tied behind my back. Now I'm swimming in open water and I'm having to make decisions quickly about things that I don't have the same level of experience and expertise. And I think that Todd has been, you know, phenomenal in helping me sort of embrace like, this is the job and it's fine and make your decisions and you're smart and you've got this. And I also knew that I needed that. Um, as I was saying earlier, just because we do it doesn't mean we're not afraid. I was right. terrified. Like I was doing great at promotion and I was being celebrated for the job I was doing. And I said, what is this going to look like if I leave this incredibly successful company to go to this smaller but also incredibly successful company? And what if I suck at this job? Right. Like, I'm afraid that I'm not going to do well. Um, and Todd was just super supportive of that. And so I think my ideas about what matters and what I should be focused on and growing artists and what's important to our business has done a complete shift from Atlantic to Alamo. And a big part of that is we're just a different business model. And I believe that as the business is evolving, that the business model for everyone is changing. Do you mean in the industry or in in, in record labels across the okay. board? It's changing, I, I think, for right. artists as well. Mm-hmm. The internet gives everyone access, right, to put their music out there for them to find their fans, for their fans to find them, for us to find them. Um, that was my next question. I mean, you have such a solid, you know, foundation, cement foundation in promotions and this whole ride. Now there's obviously streaming, social media, all these different platforms, 
AI, how, like, how has that changed the landscape of everything? Of course it has, but like, I mean, you know well better than anybody. AI, we're just dipping a toe into that. So that no just clue. started yesterday. It's with yeah, the I have no clue. Okay. I mean, you know, we can talk about the speculation, but I think it's a waste of time. I mean, we're all going to see, and it's 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 everybody. It's not just our business, right? Um, I think that, you know, listen, TikTok has been like a disruptive kind of thing, and it, some say good, whatever. It's just what do been, you say? You know, look, I, I think, what what. I think what there's new some technologies out here. Do you feel are helping hurting the business as you see it? I mean, in all fairness, right? We all love what we know, right? I'm a child. I I love the music from the '90s. I mean, I think the kids do too because there's a renaissance of all things '90s right now. But um, and so you know, I like what I know because I know it. Right, and I'm comfortable. But as it's evolving, I think I do like the idea that. The internet has given access to a lot more artists to get into the conversation. I'm not sure, you know, with the masses curating the music, one could argue that the quality of it is not as good as it used to be. Um, and of course, none of this is monolithic. There's some amazing and incredible artists and there's some that are not, right? right? Um, I think that it has added an element of likability or salaciousness to be popular on these platforms that doesn't actually have anything to do with musical talent. So sure. But I think that that is the world we're living in across the board. I mean, this applies in fashion and we used to have models that were models and now celebrities are models and this model supermodel is kind of a thing of the past. And, you know, I think that what we're seeing is that it's really, really hard for someone to become a superstar in this model. Perfect example, right, is Beyonce, who's on tour now, who feels like the biggest star in the universe, in the galaxy, became a star before all of this. Right. Right. Um, Usher. You know, Confessions, the breakout album was prior to all of this. And I don't know that there's many artists that can reach that, that level. Are, that can reach that level in this model. We're still watching as that happens. Right. And it's not, it's not impossible, but it's still early to tell. Yeah. Right. But I, I do think that, you know, it is harder to build someone to that level. Um, but conversely, I mean, Bad Bunny has exploded in the last, you know, 18 to 24 months. And, and what's happening for him is amazing. And I think what he's doing for Latin music really in America because it's, and in Europe, but I mean, it's been such a huge genre for ever because around the globe, there's so many Spanish speakers. Right. Um, but I think that his breakout success here, I think that probably what's going on with Burna Boy right now in America is there's a correlation there between the internet and how small the world has become and the access we have. And what a phenomenal artist. We love to have him, right? Bad Bunny as well. But I think... So I think there's upside and downside to it. I think that there are extremes, you know what I mean? And I, and I think it's too early to tell how it will impact the longevity of the artist. Right. So I'm sorry I don't have a definitive answer, but, it, you know, it's... How can, how can anyone have yeah, a definitive answer? I have, I have answer. very mixed feelings about it because, as I said, I just like my way. You right. Know, I, I, the way I grew up with was working for me. I loved... Whitney Houston and Usher and TLC and the Boomerang soundtrack and all the things was great. And those things don't 
kind of exist anymore. Right. For whatever reason. We're just, you know, I think one thing we try to get at is just insights. You know, yeah. you no one can uh, predict the future, yeah. but based on instincts and, and, and expertise, there might be, you know, an, an instinctual feeling yeah. about something, which is why we ask. Um, so I think that, you know, the music industry obviously has been a male-dominated space that I'm so glad you've been able to rise through the ranks. But what are some of the challenges that you experienced through the years with regard to that? Heavy question. Uh, you know, look, a valid question. I think um, early on in my career, promotion especially. So when I started in the music business, the two highest paying jobs in the label, besides being the artist, was promotion and A&R. And so my theory, and I've said this for decades and I'm sticking to it, the men didn't want us to do it because it was paid so much money. They wanted to relegate us to the other jobs that were a little less powerful and a little less, um, had a little less compensation. And I think just like historically, there are certain jobs that land as female jobs for us in our culture. And inside the record companies, that was somewhat true as well. And A&R was kind of a job that men did and promotion was kind of a job that men did. And so, you know, it was tough that I decided to do promotion because there was, it wasn't a friendly space. It wasn't welcoming. Um, one company I really wanted to work there really bad. I loved the roster and they were super successful and I thought they were amazing. And I did a bunch of wrangling because there was no internet then to get access to the guy and find someone who could introduce me to the guy who was head of the department. And I was wanted to meet him so bad. And I was like, listen, you know, I just really want to work with your company and this and that. And he said, yes, yeah, so I don't hire female promotion people because once you suck all the programmers, how are you going to get my records played? Wow. And I was like, well, you know, I feel like I have more to offer than that. I mean, in the Me Too environment, it seems crazy now. At the time, it didn't land great. I mean, that was crazy. But in my very first, one of my very first interviews for a job, the person said to me, you know, that you're going to get sexually harassed by the programmers. If they ask you to suck their to get an ad on the records, how are you going to deal with that? And I said, well, you know, I was trained as an intern at All's Fair and Love and Promotion, so I'm right after the men. He said, you're going to do great at this <laughs> Julie for the win. If they have to do it, I get it. They're going to yeah. have to do it first, though. You have to you have to have a straight poker face to make it through this. Well, and, and I want to acknowledge that, you know, the young women of today are not having it. And I have such an admiration for them. And I think it's. I would like to think that my generation, as more of us were in the rooms, gave access to get to this point. But I love that, you know, I was. I came in that if you complained or tried to sue them, you'd get blackballed. I know people who've been blackballed for trying to take up a sexual harassment suit. Um, and I loved the music business and I wanted to stay in. And so it was just kind of like, you got to be able to handle that and deal with that. And I was very fortunate that I was never assaulted. I mean, I think that I was pretty sassy and savvy. And so that helped. Um but I do, I do want to just acknowledge them. I love that they're like, yeah, no, I shouldn't have to deal with that to, to work because that's true. But I, I was trained that that is what you had to deal with to work. And I think that it made it more challenging as I evolved in my career. I was very defensive as a young woman. If someone was like, you look so pretty. I was like, what does that have to do with getting my records played? I would be mad. Like, I'm smart. I'm smart. And. 
you know, which in hindsight was a little OD, but I was young and I had a lot to prove, a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Um, Probably a chip you needed to to survive. I think so. But I and then for years, everyone was like, you know, she slept with her boss to get the job and she's sleeping with the programmers to get the records played. And so I just had to channel my inner Aaron Brockovich. And I was like, I, you know, they were like, you know, it's, I'm, excuse me, because I can't, you know, sleep with all the programmers to get my records played. That's why I'm not as successful as you. I was like, girl, and I'm exhausted. So I cannot talk from all that. I don't ha- I'm exhausted. I mean, I just I spent years trying to figure out how to prove I didn't do it until I matured enough to realize it wasn't my job to prove I didn't do it. That's and right. I just had to keep working. And, you know, but it was for decades of my career that that followed me. Um, and I don't, I think even worse, if you're a woman who is perceived to be attractive or if you're someone who likes to take the time and effort to present yourself in a certain way, that that should not be a detriment to you in any role. Women right. shouldn't be mad at you about it. Men shouldn't be mad at you about it. It's a personal choice. I also don't think that you should be penalized if you're not a glamour girl and you don't want to do that. I think that ultimately your contribution and your intellect is what matters. And as you know, I'm getting into the later stages of my career, my hope is to be remembered for my contributions and the work that I did, not, you know, that I had a good outfit. I think that's your, I think you're already on the way. (laughs) That's the plan. That's yeah, the plan. You have you solidified that. What are some critical moments that assisted in shaping your success today? The first critical moment was when I got fired from Jive. Let's talk about that. Critical. Many people have said that being fired was one of the best things that ever happened to their career, from Michael Bloomberg to so many other people. Well, there's a saying in our business that you're not in until you've been fired at least once. I've heard that. It's changing somewhat now. But <laughs> from my friends in the music yeah, business. Yeah, it was definitely a thing. Might have been me. But um, as I said earlier, I was so into this job, right? I just loved it. Couldn't get enough. Um, And my termination was a bit unexpected. Uh, No, it was unexpected. It was. So I was stunned. And it was crazy how it happened because I got fired, shocked. Like I go to my boss's office with my little notes and the HR ladies there. And I'm like, this is bad. They terminate me. I go back to my office to try to pull myself together. Stop by the president of the company's assistant and say, hey, tell him I'd love to speak to him before I leave because I'd been there nine years. Oh, my goodness. And so he said, what do you mean before you leave? And I said, I just got fired. And the assistant's like, what, what, what? So he calls me and says he wants you to wait. So it's hours. So I'm just sitting here. Everyone's coming in. The receptionist is Wait, crying. You're waiting for hours. To in my care. office after I've been fired to speak to the president of the company because he asked me to wait. Oh, my God. So talk about awkward. Meanwhile, the receptionist is crying. The head of publicity is cussing out the general manager about me being fired. Everyone can hear it. People are crying. Everyone's confused. So now I'm the one who's fired. I feel like awkward. I want to leave. People are coming in like, this is terrible. I'm like, it's okay, girl. It's going to be fine. You're consoling every right. I've been fired. Like, I need to leave so I can cry about it. So then I go to his office and then he offers me another job in the label. And I was like, I just got fired. Like, this is a crazy day. I need to leave. Right. So pull yourself together. Yeah. So I left, um, knew that I wasn't going to return. And then that night. I think I drank a bottle of Absolute and cried my eyes out was kind of how that went. And I was devastated, devastated. Um, Nine years is a long time when you have 
put your blood, sweat, and tears into doing excellent work. Yeah, and I'd, I'd spent five years working for free to get that job. My God. So I was like, the end is near. I had just bought my first house maybe like six or seven months earlier. I Come mean, it was on. all that. And it was actually um, in 2001, um, end of 2001. So maybe I've been there eight years and change. But 2001, 9-11 had happened. Um, I believe Aaliyah passed in 2001 that summer. Then 9-11 happened. And then I got fired in November. And so I was like, yeah, I'm not having a good year this year. Yeah. Um, it's starting out very promising with the new house. So anyway, that moment after getting over that, I spent a lot of time having anxiety and stress and whatever. And then I ended up temporary manage, temporarily managing my good friend, Nikki Gilbert, the lead singer of Brownstone. I moved to LA and lived in a hotel for two months and the label paid for it. And I was like, this isn't bad, actually. Right. Um, hanging out with Nikki and Faith Evans and going to the studio, which was something I didn't do in my old job. So that was fun. Um, and then I took the job at the magazine and I left the magazine. I took another job. Fast forward years later, I end up getting let go from another job. Yeah. That time I was ready. And so that first incident had taught me that it always works out. You'll be okay. My father said to me, I remember I was crying. I lost my job. And he was like, well, what were you doing when you got that job? I said, what do you mean? He said, what were you doing? I said, I was looking for a job. He said, that's exactly what you're going to be doing when you find the next one. (laughs) Good advice from my dad. So the second time I was let go, I saw a time on my contract. I was getting paid. And so I moved to Paris. I got an apartment. That's the solution. Yeah. No, (laughs) I mean, I, I I recognize in that moment, I may never get access to this amount of time off again. Right. And so the first time I squandered it, being upset and stressed out, and it all worked out. And the second time, I wasn't going to make the same mistake. And so I moved to Paris, and I did a bunch of stuff that I'd always wanted to do. Took French class every day for five days a week. Had an amazing time. Left there, went to L.A., took golf lessons five days a week with my friend. We found the only Puerto Rican golf instructor in the city of Los Angeles. (laughs) We got the last lesson. We'd bring a wine bag with two bottles of wine and golf balls in the other slots. When we got done at the driving range, we'd have happy hour on the golf course with our instructor. Great times. So I entered into my next job in a great mood, very relaxed, very grounded and ready to take on whatever was coming for me. And so that was a critical lesson about how to engage with adversity in my career and in my life. It is all about how you approach it, and you have to approach everything from an understanding that it does always work out. It really does. And the older you get, you have to keep that in mind because you're still here. We've all experienced adversity in every area by this point, right, to some degree. And so that was a really critical lesson for me. As I told you earlier, kind of what I took away from my early experience with R. Kelly has served me really well in my career. And... I think also early on, really learning how to be very honest and candid with artists. Fat Joe was a very good friend of mine, and Joe and I bonded because the way he was behaving in the label, I thought, was counterproductive to what he wanted. And I was not a big executive and nobody that he should be listening to, and he was a big star. 
And I was like, can I talk to you? And at the time he was still fat, Joe, because now he looks great. And I had this tiny broom closet of an office. And I think he like kind of came in there like sideways because it was so small. And, you know, I just offered him my insight that what he was doing was not going to encourage any of us to tell him what he wanted to know, that it was making all of us afraid of him. Mm-hmm. And he said, wow, you don't take no shit, mama. And I was like, no, I just really like, I think you can get what you want out of us, but I think that what you're presenting doesn't work here. This isn't the place for it. And I think people were afraid to tell him that. I liked him, even though I didn't know him that well. And I told him the truth. And that was sort of the opening and access for us to build a real relationship because he appreciated it. And he also made the correction pretty quickly to his credit because he's, an, aside from being a great artist and talent, he's a really smart businessman. Yes. And so, um, and I think that that speaks to his longevity as well, right? Um, and so that was a big lesson for me as well, is like sometimes you have to have the hard conversations and that is what makes the relationship. The relationships are really built in the hard times and that's how you know you have a real relationship if you survive it. If you just yes someone to death and agree with them all the time, of course it's easy to be around you. That doesn't mean that there's real friendship there or real right. relationship there. And as I've grown in my career, Todd could find plenty of people who will tell agree with him on everything for the money he's willing to pay. Right. That doesn't serve him. And he's smart enough to know that it doesn't serve him. What's hard to find is someone like me who's like, that's a terrible idea. It's a- we're not we're not going to do that. Juliet always keeps it real. Well, I mean, and I think people underestimate the value of that. If you want to be in the room where the decisions are made, you have to be a dissenting voice. Sometimes you have yeah. to be willing to be that person, because if everyone agrees, then there's no conversation. What's your thoughts on the current state of the music industry? I think that the music business is cyclical. And as always, we're in a weird space in the cycle. I think that we're feeling somewhat of the pinch of the change. The model change with Spotify and and streaming services, the volume of music you need to put out to feed that machine is a lot greater than the work a single, work another single, put an album out. You have months to prepare, right? Now it's much faster. That coupled with COVID where there was a lack of productivity on the globe for everybody. Yes. Um, there has created, I think, a little bit of a dearth in the supply chain. And I think that it's also ever-changing what impacts how people consume music. It's moving so quickly. And so I think that, and I also think I jokingly say to my colleagues that the COVID money got good, really good to everybody because people were doing nothing but streaming. They were listening to music and watching Netflix. And, you know, we've saw, we've seen what happened with Netflix with all the layoffs after, you know, COVID. It was like, we all wanted to work in Netflix. I want free lunch and free childcare. And it looks like a blast over there. You know, like, this is great. They pay you a ton of money. And then as people went back to work and our priorities shifted globally, they felt it in their business and they had a workforce that spoke to COVID conditions. And so I think that 
you know, everyone is experiencing that to a degree. A lot of businesses have to adjust. Yeah. And a lot of conversations about, you know, my personal feelings is all the work from home and all of that stuff. People love that. Right. I get it. I'm not crazy. I mean, I live in New York City. Like to be able to go to Target on Wednesday afternoon is like dreamy compared to the weekend. However, um, I get a lot of employees who push back on me, but oh, I can't believe we have to come to work and it's expensive and it's this and it's that. And of course, the millennials and Gen Zers look at that differently than I did. So I've been learning a lot from them as well about how they engage with work and and how they feel about things is very different. Um, You know, and working from home was fine. And so my new answer is really like, how do you feel about our profitability now versus pre-COVID? And what do you think the trajectory is going forward? And it's like I'm speaking Cantonese, right? They're like, oh, what up? I said, personally, like you felt good laying on the couch watching Judge Judy while you were half-ass working and now you have to come to work and you don't like that. Like what was working? Right. Because the reality is that all of us individually have convinced ourselves that the work from home model is working great, but you can look at all the numbers and it's not working great. And in some businesses, it may work great. I think in creative businesses, particularly collaboration, is where magic happens. I think that water cooler ideas are a thing that you don't get. I think that there's a level of participation and connectivity that if you only ever met your coworkers on Zoom, you're a lot less willing to be vulnerable with your ideas and meetings because you don't know them. Yeah. And they're just boxes on your screen. You know, I was a regional once where I worked in my office in D.C. and my boss was in New York. And at that time, it was conference calls. So I know the hustle. I would play solitaire the whole call till he got to my market. Oh, D.C. Yeah. What? Huh? You said what? K.Y.S. I got you. But like, I don't have a clue. And it was doing myself a disservice. Right. Because I had access to learn about how the rest of the country was moving in the other stations. But I was a little bit half ass paying attention because no one was monitoring that. And I felt so disconnected from the people. Um, that I think we're also trying to find that balance of getting people to come to work, getting people to buy into the idea that it is of value and be in reality about how the lack of participation in real life is impacting the productivity of America. Like my sister was telling me she was traveling and she went to a Target and there was nothing in the store. So she asked her friend who lives there, is this a supply chain issue? And she said, no, they can't get enough employees to work here to keep stock on the shelves like it but we are homelessness is at all time high and we have we all know someone 25 who has a list of jobs they won't do but they also are living at home endlessly and things like that and you know they just look at it very differently um when i was young i would have taken a job at target because i wanted to make money because i wanted to live on my own yeah and so i think all of those things are contributing to you know the music business is just in the greater ecosystem of the US of all of that and of the global <laughs> economy and all those things yeah thanks for sharing your perspective on that so take us through some of the initiatives that you're currently focused on or excited about at alamo so i think the most exciting thing for us is we launched a new company called santa ana in january of 23 it is a label services company and what that is is it gives access for us to do other kinds of deals besides traditional artist deals. And what I love about it, as Todd was, you know, ramping up to launch, was that it's this idea that because of the nature of what I was talking about with the internet and everyone has access, a lot of these people come with a team. Sure. 
maybe like you've built yourself up and you have a couple million views on your YouTube video and you have a manager and a digital person and you Mindy's your publicist or whatever. Santa Ana gives us access to not just sign the artist. We can sign up the team. We want to be in business with you. We want to be your partner. We don't just want the kid. We want you and the other person and the other person. And so I love the idea that it gave us a chance to partner up with great talent that was on the executive side as well and on the creative side, be it their producers. And, you know, the idea of labels and all of that has always been a thing. But the possibility of the kind of deals you can do in these models are just endless. Yeah. And I love and I think it's very forward thinking. And, you know, we're not the only company. Obviously, there's other label services companies that are huge. I mean, Sony has the Orchard and those AWOL and all those things. But um, I just think that for us, that's been our initiative. It's very exciting. We partners up with some great people. Connor Ambrose, Listen to the Kids, Barreline, Youngest Woman of Color, Deborah, have her own label, New York's very own. Um, super excited about that. So we're working on her first art issue, TS, and we're working on Connor signed this amazing young woman, um, Dean Ayada, who's from Belgium. She's Moroccan descent. And she was like on the voice kids in Belgium or something. And now she's 19 and she raps and she, Travis Scott brought her out at a show in Europe and Kanye reached out to her. It's just really amazing what she's been doing. And Connor is an incredible creative with a really cool company. Um, and so Santa Ana has given us the opportunity to partner with people like him, which I think is super exciting. That's great. I really love the idea of that new business model that you guys started. Um, it, from a creative perspective, it definitely puts you in touch with, keeps you, you know, close to the ground with what creative strategies are yeah. actually being employed to bring these artists to the forefront. So it's very cool. And we had some people that we did business with at Alamo that Santa Ana allowed us to expand our relationship with them, which has been great. So for any music artists that are listening, even aspiring artists, what are some key tips that would be a helpful guide for navigating today's music industry? Um, I think that one thing I find, this is a pet peeve of mine actually, but one thing I found is that been somewhat consistent over the age of social media. If you're a musical artist, there should be music on your page. Right. <laughs> you shouldn't just look like an artist. Let us hear something. Right. Right. Um, I think also that what else I love about um, where social media has taken artistry to a degree is that it, you really have to be authentic. So be yourself and let us know who yourself is. I think that you know, the consumers today seem very attracted to that. And you can't fake it anyway because everyone has a fall. Right. They're going to catch you. Um, But I think the key thing is like, you know, if you want to be a musical artist, lead with your music, because I think that fame pays really, really well today. And it's easy to fall into the followers influencer space and nothing is wrong with that. But I think that, you know, we all know a ton of people, a ton of personalities on social media that had that their artist on their bio and you could not name a song they're on a reality show or they are you know always doing salacious things or around famous people or at the hot spots and the places to be but where's the music yeah and i think that sometimes when you build that up and if you're not if the music 
isn't connecting, the bigger you get as a t- personality, it's harder and harder for people to take you seriously as an artist. Not Relate. impossible, but it feels like, you know, and I, and I, with respect, I get it. People need to make money. If you're making money there, like make your money if you need to make the money, but just remember to keep your music in the forefront as well, if that's really what you want to do. So Juliet, 50th anniversary of hip hop. We couldn't end this episode without getting a few words from you on that and what that means to you, your thoughts, your feeling. Um, I mean, I think it's extraordinary. I'm not surprised by it because I am kind of of that, right? Right. Like we were my when I was a young woman, we were the first ones that were really had the possibility of consuming hip hop on such a mass scale. Um when I got my first job at Jive Records, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I was a little like DC, you know, dressed up kind of a girl who went to jazz clubs and they had Aaliyah and they had R. Kelly and they had, you know, singers. And so they asked me if I owned any of the albums from any of the artists and the only albums I owned were too short. <laughs> but going to school at Maryland, I had a bunch of friends from Howard and subsequently a bunch of friends from Oakland. So I had NWA and DJ Quick and Too Short. And, you know, I was, you know, going way back when I was a little girl, like Seeker Weapon must be the music was a big thing. That's kind of an early rap record. And so, you know, to just see the evolution of it. And to see people like Queen Latifah and LL and Jay-Z and Ice Cube and, you know, how could you ever imagine that Ice Cube from NWA and Boys in the Hood would be such an extraordinarily successful Hollywood producer and actor and had the pleasure of working with him later in life. And when I used to work at MCI when hip hop was young, I worked at night, as I said, it was all students. And so one thing we used to do to entertain ourselves Sorry, MC, I think they're out of business, but we would transcribe hip hop lyrics and sign them with the government name. So we'd like transcribe <laughs> lyrics and sign it Calvin Brodus and fax it to partners of MCI or sign things like transcribe, you know, NWA lyrics, O'Shea Jackson. So, you know, that's how long I've been entertaining myself. In that <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, it was a good time. And we never, of course, got to see their reaction, but we didn't need to. Just descending was funny to us. Um, but so I, I'm just, I'm not surprised. I am happy that, you know, it has solidified it, itself as such a lasting genre of music and such a platform for, you know, our community to launch into bigger and greater things. I think that there is still room for growth as far as the respect and the honesty about all the ancillary businesses that it drives. And I think, you know, we see with Puff and Jay-Z, they're sort of the poster children of all of the things that the culture drives globally. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I just love to see it. I'm, I'm proud to be part of it. Um, and I was watching, you know, on Netflix, Ladies First, the history of female MCs and hip hop. And unbeknownst to me, one of my friends called me to have a picture of me in it. So I was super honored about that. Yeah. Because, you know, my more, the evolution of my career, I, I've sort of dipped in and out of hip hop for what people know about me in the moments, right? And yeah. 
at, at Warner Music Group, I had the pleasure at Warner Brothers with Todd, we launched MMG together. So working with Rick Ross and Wale and Meek Mill and, and spending that decade with them was, was, you know, great and a privilege and really exciting to watch it evolve. But again, I had started my early career with Too Short and Tribe Called Quest and KRS-One and, you know, all of these unbelievable talents that are such icons today, you know, onto Fat Joe. I mean, I'm so connected to it. The first, one of the first records I ever got paid to work in New York City was Outcast Southern Playlistic, the first single off the first album, Players Ball, and no one wanted to play it. They, they tell a different story today, but they know, like, you know, you don't <laughs> want to play it. Uh, but, you know, to see what Outcast became is very personally fulfilling and i love that hip-hop is getting its flowers in the world because i think that it has generated a tremendous opportunity um and helped spread american culture quite frankly around the globe amazing and i love to see you get your flowers and you've been getting your flowers um quite often in these last years with all your accolades awards magazine covers celebrating what you do Yet you stay behind the scenes, getting right down to the work, and it's really, um, you know, commendable. Is is the least that I can that I Thank can you say. So, much. so what's next for Juliet Joe? You know, we'll see. I mean, I am committed to being where I am in the Alamo Santa Ana label group situation with Todd and and Lee Larue, who joined us joined us beginning of this year we all worked together at warner brothers so it's putting the band back together we're i love having those a blast. Putting the band back together moments we're having a great time so i'm here i mean i don't think i'm alone in being concerned about the state of the country and the political environment today and so depending on how that plays out will be very key to what i do next i said to todd you know you ever think about taking this thing international because <laughs> <laughs> it's looking a little sketchy todd um, Listen, everyone's putting their seatbelt on. Yeah. So, I, but you know, for now, I'm going to do this and, you know, eventually I will retire and hopefully delve into th some more creative endeavors because I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that I was interested in when I was young um, that I kind of put on the back burner to do this work and I'm not mad at it. It's been a great time, but as life evolves, I've lived in New York for a long time. I'm not from here. I would love a easier quality of life. And, you know, with climate change, maybe I need to hurry up and connect with nature before it's too late. <laughs> before it's 120 degrees where you're thinking of going. Exactly. It's so, happening right now. <laughs> exa exactly. So, but, you know, in the interim, the future for me is, is at Sony Music Group with, you know, the Alamo folks and continuing to build our our company and and having a lot of fun well juliet tell us how people can find you probably the easiest way to find me is on instagram because there's too much social networking i don't do it all i'm not great with instagram but better maybe than everything else um and it's miss juliet jones so it's pretty easy it's ms juliet jones got it well thank you so much <laughs> this was juliet jones coo at alamo records this is what's next podcast with you mindy francis it's been amazing to have you here, Juliet. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Enjoy. <laughs> Ciao.